Welcome to Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, IML student staff Rachel Smith interviews Gavin Chuck, the executive director of Alarm Will Sound. You'll hear a fascinating conversation about the inception of Alarm Will Sound and their evolution from OSEA, a student-run group still in existence at Eastman, to a professional ensemble. You'll also hear a discussion about education systems, new music, portfolio careers, and the modern musical canon. I think you'll enjoy this episode and hopefully take a few nuggets of wisdom with you on your own journey. Enjoy! I, I was poking around on your on the Alarm Will Sound website, and I wanted to try to pick a couple of like specific projects to talk about, but I could not choose. Oh, <laughs> they were man. all like they were all so cool sounding. I was like, "There's no way I could narrow this down to like three projects." It's a good problem to have. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it's it, everything looked so cool. Like I almost cried. It was. I was like, "This is this is amazing." <laughs> That's like that. Well, yeah. then we're doing a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. So um, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the history of how Alarm Will Sound came into existence? <laughs> Alarm Will Sound actually came out of work that started when we were students at Eastman School of Music. Alan Pearson and I and many of the players, um, members of Alarm Will Sound, were students at Eastman School of Music in the 90s and early 2000s. And we started an organization called OSEA, <laughs> which still exists. Yeah, um, it does. <laughs> and uh, that actually idea came about through hallway conversations, dinner party conversations. Mm -hmm. We wanted a venue to present student works and to present music that wasn't being programmed by the faculty. That was the original idea. And as we talked about it more, we realized there was a third component that we could service, which was like teaching ourselves about what it takes to put on concerts. And so we came up with this idea of a student-run organization that would make a concert series. And we pitched the idea to Jimanda Koffler, who was then the director of the Eastman School of Music. Um, and he was very receptive and very supportive of the idea. And he helped us to get space in Kilburn Hall. He helped us with our budget at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this actually was also around the same time that the arts leadership program that then became the Institute for Music Leadership that those ideas, that he was also fostering those ideas. Right, so yeah. I think in the late 90s or mid to late 90s, it was just in the air that there were innovations to be made in mm -hmm. the way that musicians educated themselves mm -hmm. and also the kinds of music, especially new music, that we could perform. So the foundations of Alarm of Sound were very organic in that sense. I, like I said, it was just in the air. And we founded, founded OSEA and we put on concerts. And like I, said, like I said, I'm really gratified to know that that has continued. As people were leaving Eastman, graduating, we kind of all realized that we had built this thing that was obviously going to stay at Eastman, uh, but that we had all these skills that we had taught ourselves. And I think more importantly, all these relationships that we had built with each other. 
and that we wanted to keep that going as we transitioned from being students to being professionals. So in about 2000, we started having discussions about, you know, could we make this work in the real world outside mm-hmm. of it? And that's what really uh, allowed us to take the leap to make Alarm of Sound uh, like a professional ensemble. Um, we recognized, I remember we sat in Spot Coffee on East Avenue. I don't know if it still exists, but it was... It does. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A bunch of us were just like, we sat there and we're like, look, could we make this thing? And if if we do, um, what's the reason for it to exist besides us wanting it to exist? And I remember that we said, look, every European country has a large ensemble dedicated to new music that tours nationally and internationally. And while... It was true that in the U.S. there were large ensembles anywhere across the country. They were always like, you know, there was a large ensemble in New York or a large ensemble in Minneapolis or one in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't one that was like Ensemble Modern or Ensemble Intercontemporain mm-hmm. or London Sinfonietta. And so we said there is a place for us to fill. We also recognized the fact that it didn't exist meant that was probably really difficult. And, you know, we're up for that challenge. We built a really great team and we have the fire in our belly to do it. So we're going to do it. Um, and so that was in 2000. And our first concert as Alarm was Sound was in 2001, May of 2001. So it's been almost 23 years now, coming up wow. to and a half years that we've yeah. been performing as Alarm was Sound. And, you know, it was uh, incremental growth. You know, we had one concert our first year, two concerts our second year. Um, We now perform on average 16 concerts a year. But I would say the first three years of Alarm of Sound were sort of proof of concept. Like, would it actually work? Um, Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we were all coming out of music school, out of conservatory on these sort of tracks of, you know, either orchestral musician Mm -hmm. or... Uh, you know, university professor, these tracks that were well laid out and that music schools are designed to put people on. So we, those first three years out of school for everybody, I think was just like, well, I'm on the conventional track. Here's this other track. Which one am I going to take? And so mm-hmm. it took a while, I think, for us to sort of hold both those ideas or both those tracks in front of us or see them at the same time until it kind of became clear that, yeah, we can make this work. And really underlying that was always the desire to to make it work. There is a big factor of this is where there's a will, there's a way. Um, so there's a part of this where we sort of willed it into existence. Yeah. And here we are, 23 years later, almost. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I feel like almost like over two decades down the line, like we still very much have this this conventional sort of track that people are on here at Eastman. Yeah, and you know, um, part of that is just institutions move slower uh, mm-hmm. and they're built to move slower. Um, and um, institutions are also uh, have a kind of inertia uh, culturally and organizationally. And there's totally a place for that. But then there's also Mm -hmm. the edge of that. We, I think, looking back on it, um, we were always sort of pushing at the edge of that. Even when we were beginning with Osea, uh, I remember like one of the really big challenges was we're essentially doing this thing that's extracurricular 
And so, you know, it was rehearsal time on top of ensembles. Right. We were rehearsing at like 10 at night in room 120 or 512 and kind of stealing space here and there. And on the one hand, it was at the edge of the curricular mission of the school. It was a student-led initiative. And so it felt kind of on the edge that way, but it also felt appropriate that it was that. Uh, Yeah, there is a difference, I think, between the flexibility, the rate of change, the risk-taking that an institution takes and the risk-taking that a smaller group of people who are inclined to take risks that they will take. And so that, again, was very organic. At mm-hmm. times, you know, I, I remember there were faculty meetings where apparently I wasn't there, but the faculty meetings where they raised, what's this OSEA thing? And why is it taking, why are my students playing and um, in this thing? And it's taking up time. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, it was good to have that tension. It is good to have, even now you're saying that it's kind of sealed that way between it sort of is. Like the laid Very, out track yeah. and the, the stuff that's on the edge. I mean, obviously, I've chosen and the people I surround myself with on an almost daily basis are um, pushing the edge. But the thing is, I think the the value of that edge is that it is in tension with the, um, you know, the more conventional things. So there are two sides of a shared coin. Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way before. But yeah, you're right. Like this tension, like it still very much exists in Eastman. I don't know if, if this applies as much to like other institutions. It may or may not. I mean, some yeah. of it's also related to the tension between classical music as a historical tradition and contemporary classical music. Audience members who are really new to the field, it's like, oh yeah, there are composers who are still writing music today. Or just people ask me, what is contemporary classical music? Mm-hmm. There are still composers writing music today. Uh, that there is also that tension between uh, tradition and the canon, contemporary expansion of that canon. And I will dedicate my time, attention, effort, work on that side of the equation of like um, making new music and pushing the edge of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do that in with a, in a productive tension with Brahms and Bach and that tradition. I think those, again, are two sides of a shared coin. You're saying that you think that this tension that we have is kind of like essential for the progress and I guess the existence of new music or like people who do new music? I don't know that I go so far as to say it's essential. I just mm-hmm. say, first of all, it exists. I think it if it exists, then you can exploit that tension in a productive way. It's maybe a little bit like um, like a river that's flowing and the river is there and it's flowing and it's it, it, it exists, you can put a water wheel in that river mm-hmm. and you can exploit the flow of that energy to get something useful out of it. Or you can just appreciate the river for it being there. You know, all those <laughs> things are yeah. valid and uh, interesting. So I don't think I'd go so far as to say it has to. I just think it makes for much more interesting uh, work to sort of recognize the potential energy of exploiting the tension between old and new. And look, that's what culture does, right? So yeah. culture always, I mean, no matter what, it doesn't have to be in classical music alone. Culture is, on the one hand, like passing down the mm-hmm. things you know yeah. um, and the things you're familiar with. And on the other hand, saying, I'm kind of bored with the things that are handing down and uh, yeah. I, I want to innovate them. And different persons and personalities will will push 
the threshold of what is where that line of like innovation versus uh, boredom or innovation versus chaos. You know, I think it's really interesting culturally to um, have people sort of uh, working that that line between you and all all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think that our our music education institutions should innovate their own approach to music education, like how they teach music in order to sort of go with this flow? Or do you think that, like, what do you think about that? So I will always be an advocate for innovation of any kind. And Mm -hmm. specifically what you're asking about is music institutions. And I, I think, yes. And the specific areas that I think music schools should be really intentional about innovation is different kinds of music making um so the training that conservatory or music school education is built around is a very deep training in a specific kind of music making mm-hmm. which is extremely yeah. valuable there are there's so many other ways of making music and exposing students to that or giving them opportunities to learn those skills is uh, i think something that music schools should be doing more for because even just like professional occupation levels, it opens mm-hmm. more doors for people. But I think there's a deeper connection. Musical, different ways of music making music are also linked to different communities. And there's deeper connections to be made if the curriculum of a music school finds ways to invite people who have a mastery in mm-hmm. ways of playing that are not orchestral, right? Yeah, that yeah. may have improvisation built in. Yeah. Or that may be... Uh, working with computer-made music or that come from a different culture. And those kinds of connections in terms of widening the curriculum are building on music-making skills, but they're also, I think, building on cultural connection networks. At the end of the day, musicians are culture workers and increasing their surface area their exposure to different kinds of music making and different kinds of musical cultures. Um, I think that there is overall a uh, benefit to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the business of music is also very much sort of going in that direction as well. Yeah. And so the second area that I think too, um, that is ripe for innovation is having part of the curriculum be students thinking about these paths, being critical, thinking Mm -hmm. about these paths that are in front of them and how they can make their own paths. Uh, I think it's clear to all musicians who choose, uh, again, doesn't even have to be in classical conservatory. Musicians choose to be musicians because they want to express themselves. Um, And the training is almost entirely about expressing yourself through a a performance. But you can also express yourself through the choices you make about your career. And the the choice to write songs and be in a band at the same time that you play on Broadway and that you also play in a symphony and that you start an organization or some mix of all those things. That is an expression of who you are in this world. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. My sto- that's part of my story. You know, my path at Eastman was uh, getting a doctorate in composition and music theory. And the path was a un- university professor teaching job. And now my career involves teaching at Northwestern University, running alarm of sound, sometimes uh, arranging music for alarm of sound, having conversations 
uh, with composers or organizations forming partnerships, all of these things. The point is that I have built a career for myself that is an expression of who I am. Just like we train musicians to express themselves through pitches and rhythms on their instruments, uh, I think a curriculum can also afford them the opportunity to, to express themselves through the choices they make in making their way through the world. I totally agree. Yeah, it's awesome. You work for a music school, an arts organization, or maybe you're starting your own ensemble. The Eastman Leadership Bootcamp is designed for you to get the skills you need to make a real impact today while helping you advance on your career journey. Level up your leadership skills with the Eastman Leadership Bootcamp online next June. Apply at musicleadership.org. I'm also like on my way to sort of create like a portfolio career for myself. It's amazing to to be able to talk to people like for whom that has actually worked out. Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think it's more and more the case. You know, I teach a course in career innovation here at Northwestern University. At Eastman, there is the Arts Leadership Program and the Institute for Music Leadership, which mm. is a more institutionalized version of that kind of uh, those kinds of opportunities and that kind of thinking. Um, and so in terms of innovation of what music schools in general can be doing, that is an important institutional step that places can take. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple of questions about like, specifically alarm will sound. Uh, one of them that I'm particularly interested in are the musicians in alarm will sound. Is that like, is it their full-time job, like this ensemble, or do they still do like other things outside? It's a part-time job, or I, actually I like your term very much. Everybody has portfolio careers who's in alarm will sound. And so I think there is a segment of the group that is gigging musicians. So mm-hmm. they're playing in alarm sound, maybe with other groups, uh, maybe on Broadway. There's another segment, which is people who have university teaching jobs or yeah. uh, Department of Education teaching jobs mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so uh, Alarm of Sound, again, we perform about 16 concerts a year, right, maybe anywhere yeah. between 14 and 18. So mm-hmm. on average, about 16 concerts a year. It's not a full-time gig for any of the performers. That is actually, I think, a feature, not a bug. The, the fact that people are doing all kinds of different things means that, again, the surface area of their exposure to what's going on is... Hi, when we come together as Alarm or Sound, they're bringing their experiences, their ideas, their networks from all those other things. I think the, the important thing from where I sit in the organization, and I think it's really for everybody in the group, is Alarm or Sound is one of several things that people are doing, but we want it to be the highest priority. Yeah, um, yeah. And... Uh, that comes down to probably the most important, like that the uh, that alarm sound is a vehicle for expressing each person's artistic interests and each person's mission, and sort of aligning all of that um, into an organization that can last twenty three years and more. Yeah, that's amazing. What do your your project slash concert cycles look like? So, yeah, at this point. Most of the work we do is made specifically for us. 
A lot of time is spent working with composers, creators at early stages in the development of work. Um, so they're really long workshopping and development runways. Uh, we, we are luckily in a position to say, you know, oh, we would love to work with Donica Dennehy or David Little or Brittany Green or mm-hmm. whoever it might be. Um, and to be able to then approach them and say, we would like to work with you. What are you interested in, in doing? And then mm-hmm. develop a project um, from that point forward. So that's one way of looking at the work that we do, especially sort of as it, I find myself in the position I occupy in the organization, looking at three-year horizons that are about how does it work? How can we shepherd a work from idea to the stage? Uh, how can we collaborate? Uh, with music makers, music creators. That means that, uh, for example, yeah, we we perform, maybe we're 10 weeks on the road altogether. Everybody is all over the map in terms of geographically located. <laughs> yeah. And so every time we get together, it's like a tour and that's usually built around a concert. But then that's also time that we spend when we're together workshopping music that's going to premiere in one to two years time. And the kinds of projects we choose, especially those that come out of two of our programs, the Matt Marks Impact Fund and Alarm System, uh, those tend to call for really intensive workshopping because they often involve new ways of making music, um, new to us or new to the collaborators that we're working with. It means, you know, spending time actually not only working on the musical material, actually that oh how do we play this right Um, yeah yeah or saying to the person here's a musical resource we bring to the table you know Mm -hmm. here's a way of making music or a sound or uh, a set of skills that we have that may be new to you as somebody who is not coming from the classical tradition or coming out of a music school so broadly speaking that's how I from where I sit in the organization see the work we're doing. I think if you asked one of our musicians, um, they would have a, a different view from their side of thing, which is that, you know, there's a lot of uh, intense rehearsal, that there is uh, a lot of intense workshopping. You know, we fly into a place um, where they, we're together for four or five days. We're preparing a concert, we're workshopping, and that they're sort of, they're where the rubber meets the road in terms of like, just the work of music making and they're very mm-hmm. deeply invested in that that sounds like such a fun time honestly i think so <laughs> think of the challenges you know like i said <laughs> yeah. the, the good challenges in the sense especially because we're choosing to we're choosing to challenge ourselves and maybe challenge the culture around yeah different ways of making music we can mm-hmm. and we do the concerts of contemporary repertoire Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Things that people will know, but increasingly, we do pieces that are brand new in every sense of the word. These are world premieres, but they're also new ways of making music, either for us or for the people we're collaborating with. So they're new in a deep way. Yeah, I think that's that's very special because, in a way, if we look at most of like the repertoire of the canon, you know, the stuff that's performed a lot today especially like in our music institutions that was like the music of the people and the music of the times in its time 
you know, and right. it's great that we've been able to keep that stuff alive. And it still very much connects with some people internally, like even me. Yeah. I, I I love that repertoire. I have a very special connection with it. But it's also, I think, really important to be investing like our time and resources and our creativity in the music of the people of now. Yeah, you know, I see it in a, in a I agree with you and I see it in a different way. I love old music and I love new music, even the new music I don't like. And my love of old music depends on the fact that 250 years ago, somebody was listening to all the music that was being written and a chain of people kind of sorted it for me. There were thousands of composers from the 18th century that I don't know. Uh, because an audience from that time showed up to concerts, listened, applauded or didn't applaud, went out afterwards and talked about what they liked and didn't like, and kind of did their work to essentially make the tradition that I love so much. I want to repay that debt. And I want to make a situation in which audiences go to concerts today, and yet they're not going to like everything. But in a sense, in a way, the connection to the tradition is not only composers composing and musicians making music in the same tradition. It's audiences coming to concerts and listening. And on that same centuries time scale, also sorting. So 200 years from now, there'll be somebody, you know, basically like us and like, oh, my God, I love name any composer maybe i love whatever composer but the reason that they know about the composer is that today people are showing up to those concerts and going out afterwards and saying i like that i didn't like that mm-hmm. i want to make a situation in which audiences are maybe more or less aware that they're part of that cultural process mm-hmm. that they love and own music that they have to repay for to, uh, or it's work that they could do as also work in the culture that they can do that will benefit somebody a hundred years from now. So I I see that connection, which is why I have that aphorism. I, I, I love new music, even the new music I don't like, because I love the fact that somebody did that for me, that they sat in concerts and probably sat through pieces they didn't like. And that mm-hmm. I don't know what those pieces are because they maybe uh yeah, they didn't filter through. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky proposition because there are all kinds of other maybe not so great reasons things don't filter through. But the point is, I think that's what, again, that's kind of what culture does. And I want to be in a, and I am in a position to sort of engineer to some extent a situation in which that is the case that audiences come to hear work that they may or may not like, but they do it because it's about discovery, it's about curiosity, and it's about this cultural process of continually innovating. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, it's very connected to the past tradition of how we've been doing music for centuries. Yeah, look, I, yeah I see it that way. And I, but I also yeah. want to recognize that I think a lot of people don't see it that way. They just think yeah. of old music, old music and new music is a completely different thing. And they also don't necessarily see the cultural work that was done on their behalf by audiences. It's something that I think about um, Mm -hmm. to some extent. The way I think that audiences, that I can help to make audiences aware about 
that is by framing the relationship we have with audiences around discovery and curiosity and appealing to that as much as we're appealing to I like it or I didn't like it. If I like it or I didn't like it, that's going to happen anyway. Uh, but that's not the only thing that matters to people or that matters to the culture. I want other people to think about discovery, um, about risk-taking. By definition, most art is average. By definition, most art is average. That's what average means. So the idea is, yeah, you're, you're not going to like a bunch of stuff and you're going to like a bunch of stuff. But beyond that initial like or don't like, raising the average, I think, is what is the more interesting challenge. That, that to me, is a more interesting way of thinking about it. It was absolutely wonderful to talk with you. Yeah, great and, to talk with you. And I hope that we will get to talk again. Today's episode of Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians, was written and hosted by Rachel Smith. The episode was produced by Kelly Jetsom. The music was written and produced by Will Jay, and the artwork designed by Joyce Sang. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.